This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of Press One for Nick. Your host, Nick Limsdahl, is the Director of Contact Center Solutions at VDS. Through conversations with customer service and customer experience leaders, Nick and his guests exchange insightful stories, best practices, and invaluable lessons they have learned along the way. I am excited to be joined by Nick Webb. Nick is a CEO, best-selling author, adjunct professor, award-winning inventor, keynote speaker, and chief innovation officer, and filmmaker. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I saw online that you have a few patents. Can you get into how many patents you have? Yeah, right now I have, I think, somewhere around 41 or 42 issued patents. I have another half a dozen or more pending on new technologies that are relevant to the new disruptive economy. I started my career as a medical technologist. I invented one of the world's smallest medical implants for ocular surface disease. I invented one of the first wearable technologies before there was a functional internet. I started my career as an innovator and a product so developer. You created a patent that was a wearable technology before the internet. Yeah. Go through that process on what made you think about, hey, you know what? I'm going to create this patent uh, and I think this is going to be the future. I think that the best innovations come where you find the connective tissue between enabling technologies and need. Mm-hmm. Since I do a lot in healthcare, one of the biggest problems in healthcare is what we call pharmacological are regiment compliance. In other words, reminding people to make sure that they're taking their life critical medicines. Mm. And uh, back in those days, they had just came out with this amazing new technology called a two-way pager. And it looked like the original pager, except you were able to press a yes button or a no button. So I designed and invented a computer algorithm that basically automatically sent out a page to grandma at uh, 8 a.m. at noon and at 3 and at 9 p.m., for an example. Mm-hmm. And if grandma doesn't respond, yes, I took the medicine, then there was a series of things that would go back. We would page her a few more times depending on her disease process. And so it was a whole s- set of steps that allowed us to make sure that we saved lives by making sure that people were complying to drug regimentations and and other post-procedural treatments. And it was cool. I sold it for some money back in the day and moved on to my next one. But yeah, that's how I made that connection. Now, that seems simple today, but realize when I invented that, there was no internet. It just wasn't a thing. The only way you could connect was through RCC, Radio Common Carrier. Tell me about a time when you actually had an innovation that failed. Oh, when my daughter was now 25, was in kindergarten. They were having the day where they brought the parent in and talked about the parent's career. And on the way to school, my daughter asked me, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I am an innovator, which basically means I'm in the failure management business. Mm-hmm. And so she gets there and they go, now, Taylor, tell us what your dad does. And she said, uh, my dad's a failure. so thank you for that look that is uh is really what innovation is really all about it's the ability to find i in my current best-selling book the innovation mandate i talk about a definition that innovation is the process of creating novel value meaning new valuable 
that serves your organization and your customer. Those are the four elements of what innovation really is. And with that, we developed systems around it. But I'll give you one great example. I, I had this wonderful idea that everybody needed an inflatable abdominal fitness product. So I spent a half a million dollars of my kid's college fund and I invented an inflatable abdominal machine. And as a healthcare product developer. I had it tested with the Orthopedic Research Institute. The product actually worked amazingly well. It eliminated lower back pain. It used the chambers within this device to be able to roll people up into a setting position without uh, risk of back injury. Mm -hmm. And so I partnered with, with Time Life, which was part of Reader Digest, and we created this amazing infomercial. And, uh, and I'll never forget, I was out by the swimming pool and it was the day of the test and they tested it in 30 markets around the country the night before. And after these 24 hour tests, they're able to determine just how successful the product is going to be. And my wife said, the producer is on the phone for the infomercial and she hands me the phone and, and I'm looking at her gloating can, I, because I couldn't wait to tell her how much money we just made on our $500,000 investment. And I go, Dave, how did we do? And he goes, Nick, your product was like a Hoover vacuum. I'm thinking, that is amazing. They must have sold 100 million Hoover vacuums, right? And he goes, Nick, I don't think you understand. Your product sucked and blew all at the same time. <laughs> it lost $500,000 uh, in a matter of a few moments. I'm looking at my daughter who was in the swimming pool swimming, and I'm thinking, I just spent your college fund and everybody else's for that matter. But innovation is really about a stock portfolio. You do high risk, high reward in investments into innovation, and you do some of the no-brainer, low risk, low reward. And if you do it from a portfolio, a risk portfolio, yep. it uses a risk opportunity matrix. And usually you get ahead. A and for an example, I made a connection on the, on the production of that infomercial that turned into a multi-million dollar opportunity for me. Although I did lose on the infomercial, at the end of the day, it worked out. And that's how innovation typically works. Sadly, 2% of the 3,000 patents that are issued each and every week ever successfully make it to the marketplace. And it's not so much that good innovations fail. It has a lot more to do with people filing patents on bad ideas. You know, they had a half of an idea. And oftentimes people give up on their idea before it has a chance. Which is a better innovation, the iPhone or my pillow? I don't know. It seems like uh, Mike Landell has sold a my pillow to everybody on the planet. So it doesn't have to be technology. It doesn't have to be earth shattering. It just needs to be able to provide meaningful value in a way that serves you and your customer. With your book, it is what customers crave. It's how to create relevant and memorable experiences at every touch point. What made you write this book? I think it was psychotherapy. We've all been the victim of really bad customer experience. As a management consultant, I work with some of the top brands in the world, and we have been involved in delivering what's called CX innovation for years, where we help our clients innovate ways to improve the experience. And so I spent about three years researching some of the best and worst organizations on the planet with the idea of trying to find out, is there a way that I could find the X factor that, that makes these great organizations great? And is there a way to take the complexity of customer experience and make it simple? That was really my goal. And I, I think I achieved that. Some people think it's too simple. Is an iPhone too simple? At the user level, probably. But behind that screen is incredible complexity. It's easy to be complicated. It's hard to be simple. 
Because if it's not simple, it's not executional. And if that's the case, you don't benefit from it. Customers crave relevancy and they crave uh, customization. They want you to deliver experiences that are relevant to their hates and their loves. And that was one of the big discoveries from this book is that I was taught in business school that we're supposed to look at psychodemographics. We're supposed to look at ethnodemographics and seasonality and all of these different economic drivers. So the 35-year-old male affluent customer, right? And it turns out that all that stuff is a joke. It doesn't mean anything. What really matters is dicing your customers up into hate, love personas. And I do a chapter in there in the book on a car wash that used this method to identify four different types of customers they serve so that they could invent customer relevant experiences. And for example, one of them is speedy that just wants to get through there fast. So we invented a fast lane for them. There are people that are thrifty that just want a cheap car wash. So we created ways of making certain days when the car wash was slow to make the car washes less expensive and so on. So they want relevancy. The main thing, if I were to say, what is the one thing that they all hate? Everybody hates friction. We are moving towards friction freedom. And the biggest mistake, the first thing that we look at when we talk to an organization is how can we eliminate friction? That's what makes people hate you. So that's it. What do they hate? How do we eliminate those hates? What do they love? And, and that is very specific to a, to a range of four to six personas. What does good customer service equal bad customer experience mean? I think that it's easy to deliver good customer service from a superficial perspective that customer service is something that, that is generic, that's non-specific, that's non-customizable, mm-hmm. that's at the baseline level of customer's expectation. The good customer experience is one that is holistic in nature. It's so important to not just go through the motions with either customer service or customer experience and, and kind of check the box of, hey, I, I said it and I forget it, right? Like right. I'm doing my best effort. What does your best effort mean? Is it what's best for the customer or is it what's best for you? Why is it important to hang out with your customers? There was a management theory that uh, was popular back in the late uh, or the early 80s called management by walking about. And what they found is, and I see this all the time with net promoter scores. I see it with independent customer surveys. Steve Jobs never took a look at a, a customer survey. He invented things that they didn't even know they needed yet. So there is a common method that we use called ethnography, where we live with our customers to understand them at an emotive level to where we really understand their behaviors and their loves and their hates. You can't be good at this. Uh, one of my favorite uh, CEOs is uh, Ken Grossman, the CEO of Sierra Nevada Brewery. He isn't just a guy that produces beer. He's a decamillionaire. And he's hanging out with, uh, with people at the pub talking about beer. And I asked him, I said, Ken, does this, isn't this getting old? Let's sell this place. Go sit on an island. Go buy an island for that matter. He goes, this is what I love. <laughs> I love my customers. I love collaborating with them. I love co-creating with them. Snap-on Tools loves their customers. They know their customers really well. They co-create with their customers in their labs. And because of that, they develop hits. They create two to 300 new products a year, all of them successful because they live with their customers and they are their customers. When it comes to customer service, a lot of people are thinking of it more of a best practice and not as a a way of doing business in the front line and the voices of the customer. Why should people stop thinking about it as a best practice? Because if you look at this as a machine, as customer insights, as data nodes, 
and you look at journey maps as a signature for design, you're always going to be bad. This is humans serving humans and all of the best practices. I, I was really surprised when I researched this book, how many authors are out there talking about how to get rid of your non-profitable customers and how to leverage uh, customer experience designed to increase customer throughput for maximal profit. If that's your target, you suck. You are never going to be good. You, this is a human to human experience to yeah. the extent that you're empathetic, to the extent that you really care. I give an example, I think maybe even in the book, where a friend of mine was really into whole natural food and he opened up this really gourmet, beautiful uh, fruit stand in a very affluent area of Santa Monica. And uh, he would get out there and he would talk about grapes and figs and fruits to all these millionaires that would come into his shop every day. And then one day, a lady came in and she slipped on a grape that was on the ground and she sued him. And I remember coming in a couple of weeks afterwards and the entire place was signs. He made things, no grape zones. He had hazmat signs. And when I talked to him, his spirit was broke. No longer was it about serving the customers that had a shared passion. He was about defending himself against the predator that he then considered. And a few months later, he was out of business. So that's what happens is that we have a thing called corporate life cycles where we start because we love an area and a market and the customers that occupy it. We create beautiful, cool things that they're going to love. And then we have to manage HR and then we have to manage risk and then we have to manage facilities. And once we lose our customer mojo, it's just a matter of time before bankruptcy comes knocking. That's an unfortunate story. I would love to have a gourmet fruit stand sitting in my neighborhood. I'd be there all the time. Yeah, me too. At the beginning, you mentioned innovation. Uh, You also mentioned that you're working with some of the largest companies in the world around CX innovation. What does customer experience innovation mean to you? You have to ask yourself, what do we really want to achieve? What is it that we want to to achieve with our CX initiative? And then the second thing you have to do is you have to put together the insights that are not fake survey insights. You have to find out what your customers crave. We do something that's real exciting, that's incredibly effective. We do CX hackathons. And we start by going through, and, and this happens every time. I just did one not too long ago. I did a virtual one a few days ago. And you break your team up into six or seven teams with six to 10 people in each team. And you ask them each to identify your four main customer personas. And then I tell them to call them something, right? Every time they create four personas in that company, I just did one for a, a credit union. And they, they, had, they had needy. And they had complaining and they had all these different names for them. And it was interesting to see that every group came up with something almost identical in terms of the four personas. And then I asked them to invent across the five touch points. What is the pre-touch moment? How do they, what happens when they look for us? What does that look like? Are we, can the three things you need during the pre-touch moment, can you be found on the internet? If you're found, do they land in a relevant spot that's highly relevant? And thirdly, is your website a value dispenser? So we, in, we innovate in the pre-touch moment, the first touch moment, the core moment, the last touch and the in-touch moment. So at the end of that hackathon, we actually build out a CX strategy. And I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever done it. I've done, I don't know, maybe 70 or 80 of these. I don't think there's ever been a time where major innovations weren't created as a result of those CX hackathons. 
It's so interesting. I've heard of journey mapping and having customers come in, but I haven't actually heard of a, a CX hackathon. So I'm going to have to keep that in my back pocket and yeah. give you a call later. <laughs> there was a, a guy in my master's class who showed up with a, a suit that was really big on. It was during a presentation and everybody else was looking sharp. And he joked that he bought it from a, a warehouse that said one size fits most. It wasn't <laughs> technically a large or a medium and, and it looked like it too. But one thing that you had mentioned in the book is how do you finding ways to avoid a one bucket CX customer experience and, and finding ways to maximize that customer satisfaction. So how yeah. do you go about avoiding that one size fits most customer experience? Yeah, it's interesting. It turns out there was a study that was done by Bain that I talk about in the book where they interviewed over 300 executives and they asked him a simple question. How would you rate your uh, quality of customer experience? And something like 89% of them said, excellent. And then Bain said, wow, that's pretty amazing that we have 89% of these CEOs, three, over 300 of them telling us that they have got an incredible customer experience. So they went out and they surveyed the customers of those companies and only 7% of the customers agreed. So the, the first thing we have to do is we have to get through this sort of dysphoria of this confusion about really how good we really are. Chances are you're not as good as you think you are and since the baseline level of customer expectation is always rising, if you're not always getting better, you are falling behind for sure. So the first thing that we have to do is recognize the fact that we need to improve. Then we have to ask ourselves, how do we go about identifying the hates and loves of our customers across a range of personas? Because if you don't understand them from that emotive level of hate, love personas, you, you really can't invent better experiences. And then from there, you have to test that across the five touchpoint journey. You have to make sure that it's actually playing out. I have clients that have really good organizations and crappy websites. Your website is part of the value that you deliver in a time of blended experiences, right? So it's the challenge you have is you have to provide a holistic experience, meaning across all personas. And then you have to provide a good experience across all personas across five well-defined touch points. That's not easy. Dutch Brothers does it well. In-N-Out Burger does it well. Many organizations have been able to scale this in a way that's really impressive. So why do these organizations like Dutch Brothers, like In-N-Out, why are they doing it really well? And, and why are they different in making that switch or that aha moment to switching through those five steps? Let's take in an Alberger for an example. They're a very secretive organization. We try to interview them. Many people have, and they don't, want to, they don't want people to know their secret formula. But we did our research, and we've discovered that back in the founding, I believe it was in 1957, their founder developed what they call the Bible, which is in their safe, and their granddaughter, who is the sole heir of, of in an Alberger, still has. It was a, our principles, what we stand for. And they really care about their principles. They care about their principles and the kind of people they hire in the way in which they support and honor and respect and train the people that work for them. And they are unshakable on that. So it scales because being great to people at every touch point and you having amazingly good principles always results in, in success. If you look at from a journey map perspective, way back when they were doing this, the FSR, the fast serve restaurant business was very new. Well, the one thing that In-N-Out Burger realized is if that we were going to serve these people, we needed to be able to hear them and they needed to be able to hear us. If you look at the In-N-Out Burger restaurants that were put up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, 
the speaker is actually a big megaphone. So you can hear them very clear and they can hear you very well. If you go to some restaurants, they have a speaker the size of a half dollar and you can never hear what they're saying. Seems like a little deal, but it's part of the first touch point, right? The other thing is that they decided that they can't be good at everything, but they can be really good at hamburgers. So when you go to the In-N-Out Burger sign, it's not confusing. There's a, there is a challenge when we have lots and lots of options it's actually an adverse thing for customers, right? So you have a handful of things that you can order and every one of them are perfect, mm. literally. They actually have special bakeries that make their sponge bread. They use sponge bread even though it rots really fast because nobody else will use it because you can't store it for long periods of time, but they use it because it's the best you can possibly get. And so they bring in fresh sponge bread every day. They have special growers that grow their onions and tomatoes. Everything has to be literally perfect. I dare you to find a wilted piece of lettuce or a bad tomato or onion. It's not going to happen. The other thing that they do when you drive through, they have this big pane glass window, not because they want their employees necessarily to look out. They want you to see the employee working at the French fry extruder, making fresh French fries all day long. That's a story. At the end of the day, they tell a great story of cleanliness, of freshness, their hospital-like cleanliness inside their kitchen from the, the outfits they wear that are impeccable. Everything they do is about telling a story of quality. Everything they create is perfect, and they never, ever waver from that Bible that was created back in 1957. It's a, such a good story. I've never, I've been there probably five, six times. I've never had a bad experience at In-N-Out. The story holds true. Yeah. In chapter 12 of the book, you talk about technology and the future of CX. Where do companies succeed and or fail when it comes to implementing technology? And does it matter if they should focus on the customer experience or not? So the neat thing about technology is it provides us this new concept of the surveillance economy. And there's a lot of criticism about how we can use cookies and we can use uh, GPS tracking and all this kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. The best way to look at technology, and it's important on CX, if we use technology for good instead of evil, we will succeed. Yeah. The problem is that most people look at technology as another way of tricking somebody or spamming somebody or engaging somebody. I, I, it, I literally own, maybe in my business, 50 Apple computers. So Apple knows how to find me. And Apple has my email, my home address, my phone number. They have everything. And Apple is very careful to only contact me when they can do something good for me. I, in fact, got an email from their local business or my local business concierge at the local Apple store because their store is closed. And she wanted to let me know that she's available if there's anything she can do for me. She didn't send me a coupon. She didn't send me a, a buy now incentive. She contacted me and leveraged the covenancy of that secret information only to serve me. We could go into a lot of detail about technology. I will tell you that we're going to be able to increase tracking. We're going to be able to increase access to lots of personal information. The real point here is organizations need to use it for good instead of evil, and it will serve them well. That's great advice. When it comes to technology, it's yeah, you're going to have to give up a little bit of your privacy, but what's the benefit, right? If the benefit 
without risks of having your privacy. Like you said, Apple's going to be able to see you from 50 separate laptops, but if you can improve the experience and solve the issue of the customer, then I think it's a win-win for everybody. I wrap up every podcast by asking my guests two questions. The first question is, what book or person has influenced you the most in the past year? And the second one is, if you could leave a note to all the customer experience professionals and everybody would receive it, what would it say? I'm uh, writing, actually almost done with a book called Heyday, which will be out in 2021. And uh, Heyday basically is a, a, a story of all the amazing teachers that have appeared to me in my travels around the world. But I recently referenced uh, a book that kind of got the party started for me, and that was The Magic of Thinking Big by Dr. David Schwartz. And it was interesting to me to find that Seth Godin and, and many other highly successful thought leaders, mm -hmm. when they asked them their, the book that was most impactful to them, they also mentioned David Schwartz. So I think even though it's uh, written, gosh, 40, 50 years ago, I don't know, a long time, I read it as a young lad, and I'm 62. That book has been unbelievably influential in my life. I think if I were to leave a, a note to every CX executive, I would say that the current ether in the area of customer experience, in my humble opinion, is generally wrong. And it's wrong because it's focused almost as exclusively on, if you take a look at the people who propagate a lot of the customer satisfaction surveys, and it's great for them because it must be nice to make that much money selling these software packages. Yeah. But at the end of the day, customer experience is about serving, honoring, and respecting human beings. And if we do everything from the perspective of decency and honesty and, and love, we can't lose at this, right? You can't lose at this. If you use those tools to try to make more money, it's a paradoxical intent or what some refer to as purpose trimmer. The more you try to make money from customers, the poorer you get. The more you try to serve them, the more wheelbarrows of money that surprisingly land on your desk. And that would be my advice. That is great advice. Nick, what is the best way my listeners can get in touch with you? So my speaking website is nickwebb2bs.com. My consulting business is simply goleaderlogic.com. I also serve as a chief innovation officer and an adjunct professor at Western University, one of the country's largest medical schools. So I spend a good amount of my time over there as well. I'm always glad to share ideas with people and I appreciate having the, the opportunity to share some of these ideas with you. I highly recommend grabbing his book, What Customers Crave, How to Create Relevant and Memorable Experiences at Every Touchpoint. Nick, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, listeners, can you think of one person who would benefit from the information you learned today? If so, please consider sharing this episode with them. And last, if you would like to receive all the quotes and book recommendations from all my guests, you can go to pressonefornick.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Press One for Nick. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share. Until next time, focus on your customers. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.